0: Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. This is very special. Uh, you certainly know my next guest from that phenomenal show, Hot Bench, <laughs> Judge Michael Corriero, my friend, my co-host. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for that, being on the show. Thank you,
1: Judge Acker. I am so pleased to be here with you. It's, it's been a long time. Since uh, we talked about it, but I'm here now and uh, I'm yours to discuss.
0: What is this Judge Acker? So I learned Uh, how to be a uh, judge. I learned how to be a judge (laughs) uh, sitting on the bench next to you and our friend Patricia. Uh, You everybody should know this, before Hot Bench, you were on the New York State bench for Mm -hmm. 28 years. And during those 28 years, you spent 16 years as Chief of Manhattan's Youth Part. Uh, A lot of people know you as the very famous Judge Michael Corriero. They don't all know that you're really a champion in the area of ensuring that courts treat people, certainly young people, more fairly. You created Manhattan's Youth Part. In New York State Court, what is Manhattan's Youth Part?
1: Uh, thank you. First of all, I, you know I, I'm really so honored to be with you because I know how engaged you are and how passionate you are about juvenile justice and these issues. And I really wanted to have an opportunity to share with you what motivated me to become involved in juvenile justice and to ultimately, as you pointed out, establish a youth part in Manhattan. Manhattan Supreme Court. I, I, I think if you'll permit me tonight, you know, one of the things that affected me was that as a judge for 28 years, I, I saw how the system was essentially failing young people. In New York, we were prosecuting children as, as adults for many years As a matter of fact, uh, since 1978, we had 13, 14 and 15 year olds coming into the adult court, uh, charged as juvenile offenders with the most serious crimes, facing mandatory imprisonment uh, and significant jail time. And if upon conviction, the stigma of a felony record for the rest of their lives. And so I recognize that this was not a process that was consistent with the developmental differences of children and what children mean in a democratic society. I mean, children embody this concept of opportunity for our society. They they make the American dream come alive by virtue of of their accomplishments. And we as judges, as lawyers, as citizens, I think have a moral obligation to see that they are nurtured, Um, So in 1992, uh, after uh, I've, I've been on the bench in Manhattan for 28 years, the last 16 years I presided over what came to be called Manhattan's youth part. And the youth part was established essentially to focus resources and attention on this very youthful category of offender that was coming through the courts. And up until that point in time, their cases were arbitrarily dispersed among the 50 or so criminal court judges uh, sitting in Manhattan. In 1992, I I, I got the support of my administrative judge to uh, experiment on creating a youth part where I would have the responsibility of resolving the cases of all the 13, 14 and 15 year olds coming in and their co-defendants regardless of age. So we started this and the best way that I hope you don't, you don't mind that I, I talk. You can interrupt me at any time. No, please. I no, would never interrupt you, talk. Judge Corriero. <laughs> you know once you turn me on on this topic, <laughs> I, I'm still so passionate about it that, that there's so many things that I want to share with you. But I think the best way to, to frame it is to tell you why I think uh, we need to be dealing In the United States with children in a better way. Recently I believe the uh, uh, not-for-profit prison justice policy center and the Justice Department conducted a study which indicated that each day in the United States approximately 50,000 or so young people under 18 years of age are housed in confinement. And the study followed these young people for a period of time and found out that within three years of their release from these institutions, 70% of them were being re-arrested. That's astonishing. That's an astonishing number. 70% of them uh, were re-offending. 70% of them were uh, engaging in negative behavior in in their communities. 70% of them would essentially be saddled forever by a felony conviction and prevented from kind of reaching the lowest ladder of the road to to success in in America. And to me, this is a problem that has to be addressed because when we look at that 70% and we look at the young people who are detained in our institutions, they're primarily from our poorest communities, our underserved communities, African-American, Hispanic youth, minority youth. These are the, the young people the adolescents whose lives are being forever altered by a system that fails to recognize the developmental of differences of young people. And, and that development difference, difference means that they fail to recognize that children are malleable, that they can recover from their mistakes. The best way in which we can preserve our democracy and preserve the meaning of our American dream, which is, as far as I'm concerned, that no matter who you are or where you come from, you have an equal opportunity to succeed, is to have a juvenile justice system that is able to link young people with the kind of services they need in order to have that fair opportunity to succeed.
0: So let's just dig into that for a second, Michael, because the theory of the youth part is that young offenders, youthful offenders should not be treated as adults. Is that universally the case? No. Has there ever been a circumstance where you would say, you know what, the crime that this juvenile committed was so heinous that they should be tried as an adult?
1: We created the youth part as a process to help us identify those young people that we thought we could safely channel out of the system and link them with alternative to incarceration programs that could meet their needs, that could help them educationally, that could help their families, that could help uh, them discover their talents and and to link them essentially with credible messengers who had had experience in the streets, who could be trusted by them and look up to them. So So the process recognized also that we were working within the confines of a system that uh, essentially wasn't sensitive to that concept. There was a presumptive punitive response, essentially written into the law with respect to young people who were accused of serious crimes.
0: So how did it work? So if someone, explain what happened to a youthful offender who appears before you and you believe that uh, he or she was a viable, a good candidate for Youth Park. Right. What was the process for them?
1: Let me tell you about Loretta. Loretta is uh, was a young 14-year-old African-American young girl uh, who was riding on the subway with a friend of hers who was a little bigger, a little tougher, a little older, and the friend saw so another student on the way to school that particular morning who had these beautiful earrings hanging from her pierced ears. And the friend turned to Loretta and said, Loretta, look at those earrings. I like them. I want them. The bully got up and Loretta followed her. And they hovered over this little girl on the way to school. And the bully said, give me your earrings. the girl tried to ignore, give me your earrings. The girl got up, tried to walk away, but was blocked by Loretta, who was standing next to the bully. So she sat back down. Again, there was a demand, no response. Train starts to pull into our 14th street subway station in Manhattan. As the doors are about to open, the bully reaches down and rips the earrings out of her ears. Both the bully and Loretta run out of the train There happens to be a New York City policeman on the platform, sees what happens, sees this little girl screaming, yelling, blood perhaps pouring from her ears, arrests both Loretta and the bully. They are charged with robbery in the second degree, the forcible taking of property. Loretta is charged under the theory that she was acting in concert with the bully. She was facing mandatory imprisonment under the juvenile offender law of a minimum of one to three years maximum of three and a third to 10 and upon conviction, a felony record for the rest of her life. So about 30 days after Loretta was arrested, she and her case appeared before me. And during this period of time, she was held on $500 bail. And I'm told by a, a lawyer that's representing a judge, said so Loretta you know, was detained because she was unable to make the $500 bail, but she's really a very talented young woman who wants to be a dancer. She goes to one of our schools for the performing arts, and you really ought to take a quick a better look at her. So I asked one of the program representatives who would come to my part to lobby me, in a sense, for cases, because we were one part, we were one place, so it was easier for them to kind of uh, sit in the audience and watch and, and, and speak to the, to family members in order to get a sense of what kids they thought they could work with in their programs. And so one of them come up to me and I said, do me a favor." I said, interview this little girl. She's in the back. Tell me what you're thinking. Comes back to the judge. I asked Loretta a typical social worker question to get a sense of who she was, what her relationships in the community were. She said, I asked Loretta, Loretta, if you could change three things in your life, what would you change? She said, Judge, you know what she told me? I said, no. I said, what what did she say? She said, Loretta said she would change her country, her family, and her sex. Uh, Her country because she believed that America was a racist society. Her family because her mother was a crack addict and she never knew who her father was. And her sex because she felt that young women were vulnerable to physical and sexual abuse. Tanya, ha, ha. How how do you turn that life around? How how do you reach a child like Loretta? How right. how, you, how did well, you, how well, did you I, reach her? I, I told her, I, I told Loretta, Loretta, don't you understand around your talent? You have the capacity to change the circumstances of your life. Don't you understand that within you you can be a better person? You can find some comfort in who you are. How how do you as President Obama once said, how do you turn on that little light bulb and give this little girl the audacity to hope? Because that's the word that he used, the audacity to hope. Because she needed something to encourage her to have hope because she she was uncomfortable in her country. She was uncomfortable in, in her skin. She was uncomfortable in her family relationships. And we needed somehow to turn that little light bulb on. So what I did with Loretta, I said, Loretta, you spent 30 days in jail. What did you think of it? And she, and she really burst into tears. And I said, I want you, I want you to put that here uh, on the side. Never forget it. Never forget what the food tastes like. Never forget what it meant that you had to be uh, give up your privacy when you needed to do something. Never forget the people that you met there and how it felt to be in isolation. How it, how the bars felt against your hand. Never forget it. Let it sear itself into your heart, into your mind. But I'm going to release you today. I'm going to put you in this program. And I'm not just going to put you in this program and forget about you. Every week, I'm calling your program representative. How's Loretta doing? In school every day, doing what she's supposed to do? Uh, giving you any trouble? Keeping a curfew. Every three weeks, you're coming back before me, Loretta, for a progress report. And if you do that, if you stay out of trouble, for a year and you cooperate with the program, then at the end of that year, I will take the responsibility, usually over the objection of the prosecution, I will take the responsibility to exercise the limited discretion that I had to grant you what we call youthful offender treatment, which means that your record of conviction will be sealed forever. And I'm free to give you a non-incarceratory sentence of probation. But if you file up, Loretta, then I'm going to sentence you to what the district attorney is recommending or a period of imprisonment that I think is appropriate. But you have to do everything I say. Do you, do you want to take advantage of that offer? And a lawyer would discuss it when we would discuss And we would have this colloquy. And I'd place Loretta in a program and I'd monitor her behavior. And each time she came before me, she might have had a problem here or a problem there. And I tried to work with her. So that she would come to trust me. She would come to respect that I had faith that through her talent, she had the power to change the circumstances in her life. That I believe that. And I wanted to communicate that belief to her, that conviction, because it is the power of conviction that very often is the persuasive element that gives young people a chance to hope for a better life because I told her, I, I believe she can do I believe she can have it. So how did she end up? What happened to her ultimately? Well, Loretta, very, very interesting story. I monitored her behavior for about eight months and she was doing very well in the program. And she came back one day and the counselor, and, the, and uh, over time, the counselors and the lawyers, they came to respect what I was trying to do. And so they were very free in communicating to me what was happening in the lives of these young people, the communications that wouldn't necessarily come between judge and uh, and defendant, because they knew that I would try to deal with them in a constructive way and never in a negative way. So uh, one of the uh, counselors said, judge, you know, Loretta has been doing well, but she's got a boyfriend and he's somewhat older than she is. And she's missed curfew a couple of times, but he's, he's a working guy and we don't want her to foul this up because of him. And I said, all right. I said, Loretta, I said, I can understand that. I can understand, do you like this fellow? I said, yes, you you really have a good relationship? Yes, he treats you well? said, yes. I said, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring him here the next time. I want to talk to him. And as I said, I want to talk to him. It was like, I was trying to bring bring every word back because I realized, no, I I put this on this young woman's shoulders that she's gonna bring in a boyfriend. She didn't come back. I ultimately had to issue a warrant. Fast forward three years later, four years later, let me see, Loretta was 14, maybe it was about five years later, a young woman comes into my courtroom, standing in the back, waiting till we finish the calendar and smiles at me, I smile. I said, do you have a case here? And she says, well, I did. And she came up and I said, Loretta, I said, why Why did you come back? She says, Judge, I got so frightened. I thought you were going to get my boyfriend in trouble. Uh, I I moved up to Albany. Uh, I went to school. I've got a job in in a college uh, working as an administrative assistant. Uh, And and I was driving in my car and and the police pulled me over and the warrant fell on me. So I'm here to clear it up. So I said, well, you're working. You're staying out of trouble. She says, yes, Judge, I, I have two jobs. and and I'm staying out out of trouble. I haven't been rearrested or involved. I said, all right. So you go down to the probation department and you tell them what happened and I'm vacating the warrant and then you come back up here. She goes, I get a call from the probation officer. She says, judge, did you send this young woman Loretta down to me? Yeah, you know, she was out. I said, yeah, I know, but she's been out of trouble. She seems like she's back on track and I can understand why she may have panicked. And, and her relationship seemed, seemed to be good. She said, you know, she has another job. I said, well, she said she had two jobs. She says, yeah, she's working at the Naked Essence. I said, what? The Naked Essence is, just, is apparently a, a girly show or whatever it is, or a strip club. And I said, well, I said, she's working. She's making good money and she's staying out of trouble. Just send her back up here. And we continued working with her, put her back on probation. She completed probation successfully, and as I understand, moved up in the university that she was working at to the point of being uh, an administrative assistant to the vice president.
0: Wow! So she came before you, uh, got into some trouble, yeah. went participated in this incarceration alternative uh, that you established in youth part, slipped up a little bit. Yes, you caught up with her again. Right. Uh, she was working as an adult entertainer. You gave her another admonishment, and then now she Well, she's... I, I, did, I didn't. Uh, she, I didn't. Because that wasn't against I didn't the tell rules, not right? To work. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't no, against so. the rules. She wasn't breaking no. the law. She no, wasn't breaking the law. It wasn't. Um, but she then ended up from that position to being an administrative assistant. Yes. Uh, and getting her college diploma. And getting her college diploma. College that's diploma. a wonderful success story. So how many, how many uh, young people, Michael, came through this program?
1: Sixteen years I sat in the youth bar and handled the cases of thousands of teenagers, thousands of adolescents. And I managed to give 65% or more an opportunity to earn a second chance. So when I talk about the concept of rehabilitation, and I think that judges have a significant role in the rehabilitation process. But when I talk about it, I don't talk about it in terms of curing an illness or changing character. I talk about it as a process of developing character. And the alternatives incarceration programs do that. They expose these young people to mentors, to education, to trades, and and uh, to, to, to reading and opening up their minds and letting them know that there is someone who cares. And so my motivation for taking on this responsibility really, I think, was was the arc of, of my destiny. I, you know that I that I grew up in Little Italy, you know? I
0: think before, I, it's so important, Michael, um, for people to understand what motivated you. Because yes. look, there are a lot of judges who don't take the time to dig into what's going on with a young offender. Right. Uh, right. There are a lot of decision makers right. who just write those kids off. So right. tell us, I know this story, but <laughs> uh, tell my listeners right. why right. this issue Was so important to you personally?
1: Well, I grew up in a tenement, uh, literally across the street from New York's notorious tombs, which is the men's house of detention. My parents were not formally educated, but they believed in the power of education. My father was a longshoreman. My mother did the work of a seamstress. Uh, uh, They believed in the power of education, the power to change the circumstances of your life. The only way to to move forward in our society. And they sent me to school, a Catholic school on Chinatown called Transfiguration and where I met the Maryknoll missionaries who were just a vibrant group of young people who were engaged in no less a challenge of converting China at the time. And that's why they were there learning and perfecting their Chinese. And they were inspiring. They weren't, uh, in your mind's eye, you might conjure up what a nun, a Catholic nun might be like, but they were, they, they were, I wouldn't say zealots, but they had a passion, and they they communicated that passion to us. And somehow they 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 had a worldliness about them, and they planted these seeds in us that you know, the only way to really succeed in life is by helping others. By helping others, you help yourself. And so I, I really have to thank them. Of course, at the time I resented their discipline, and I resented, but but I. They planted these seeds in me. They planted this idea of redemption. Transfiguration itself, the name of the two church is a, it's taken from, from the Bible, the New Testament, where Jesus was transfigured into the older prophets, uh, that the apostles saw the image of Jesus is this idea of becoming, becoming a better person. And that's what adolescence is about. every child born into our society has value. Every child, that, like the ancient uh, uh, elders would say, what is this child's destiny? And so for me, I walked the mean streets of Little Italy. I saw easily how easily a careless choice could alter the course of your life. I saw how easy the power of peer pressure could make you do things that you wouldn't necessarily embrace. And I also knew that I had been given great gifts in terms of the education I received and the opportunities that people who cared about me presented to me. And and I've always said that the greatest alternative to detention is caring, caring about the person that you're dealing with. So I've, I've always brought this passion for trying to help young people recover from their mistakes.
0: When you would see these young people come before you in court, did you rec- uh, Did you identify with them at all? Did you see Absolutely. parts of yourself in them? Is Absolutely. that what, what motivated you?
1: I would always ask an audience, how many of you have ever been 14? And <laughs> facetiously, of course. I said, and how would you like to be defined forever by what you did in 14? I, I've always remembered, there uh, was a wonderful TV series, I don't know if you saw it, but it was, it was called The Wonder Years.
0: Yeah. And
1: you know, it, it was a great team. It's yes, back. and And Kevin, yes, that's right. Kevin, I caught one episode when Kevin had um, a crush on Winnie, right? who was the other character. And he never followed up on the crush because Winnie wasn't considered attractive at the time. Uh, she had freckles, as I recall. She had glasses. She was studious. So she wasn't the kind of girl that the boys were. Uh, you know, felt enamored about. And so Kevin was intimidated by that and never asked her, never followed through on his crush on her. And if you remember the format of of The Wonder Years, at the very end, the older Kevin is looking back on his exploits. And in this one, he looked back and lamented the fact that, you know, I, I, I really... I really had a crush on Winnie. Of course, you grew up to be very beautiful and very powerful, but I never followed through on it. And then he said, but who are you at 14? Who are you at 14? You are what your friends think you are. And I said, wow. I said, he's, he's right, because that's what the, the essence of adolescence is, is, that your image of yourself as a young person doesn't come from within very often. It comes from without. I'm the mirror image of what my friends think of me. And this is, this is a difficult thing for us. And there are some people who are very fortunate, who, who knew their destiny early on, who knew that who they were early on. But there are many of us, who that this whole adolescent period was, was a period of discovery and carelessness goes along with that discovery and mistakes happen. so I always saw in the young people I mean, if you had seen me at 14 or 15 years of age,
0: what would we have seen? Tell us, what would we have seen?
1: This young boy emulating the dress of the local gangsters in Little Italy with with a cigarette hanging out of the corner of my mouth, uh, essentially a (laughs) hoodlum, and uh, no one would have ever imagined that that 14-year-old boy would one day ultimately grow up to be a judge.
0: Not only did you grow up to be a judge, but you grew up to be a judge who's uh, really made it a priority to push for reforms that you thought were important. So let's just talk for a second about how you think the system works structurally for most people, because every court doesn't have a youth part uh, and every judge is not a Judge Michael Yeah.
1: Well, Um, thank you. But I, I first of all, let me say that uh, I, I want to thank you for uh, bringing me into the the, the, the the field of California juvenile justice. I know we had some wonderful meetings with one of your former mentors, uh, who was a federal judge uh, who really does a very... Um, sensitive, moving figure to me.
0: Judge Dorothy Nelson, Judge Dorothy Wright Nelson.
1: Terrific, terrific woman. And California, as compared to New York, has a wonderful, sensitive, developmentally appropriate structure of dealing with young people. And by that I mean is that if you're under 18 years of age, you're, you're ordinarily going to be presumed to be going into a juvenile court, family court setting where... You're, you're likely to come out of that without a criminal record. Certain young people, of course, will be tried as adults either because of the repetitive nature of their misbehavior or the, the harm, the serious harm that they've committed. And to go back to your other question, yeah, there are some young people whose issues are so deep and challenging that we don't yet have the means or the capacity to undo them.
0: Can you give and us an example? To... Give us an example of a situation where you felt that the no. issues were so deep that no amount of alternative treatment uh, could really result in a, a turnaround. Can you give us an example of something? Yeah,
1: we had we had a young boy. Uh, the case still haunts me in many ways. Who was came before me was fourteen years of age. And I required a pre-pleading investigation for every young person. I wanted to get a sense of who they were, what their relationships in the community. And I got a probation report. And the probation report said that he had been in 14 different foster homes since birth. He was found in a dumpster and had been in 14 different foster care settings because of his behavior He wasn't adjusting well. And he had serious issues, mental, emotional. And he came before me for a a violent robbery. And I could not find a way to do what was right within the confines of of the law and the circumstances. And I ultimately decided on a sentence of two to six years. The maximum would have been three to a third to 10. there were no resources available for him. His his mental health issues were they would come and they would go. And you know I you know the, the horrible thing about young people, is that you you can't identify very often what their mental health issues are because they're incipient. They're becoming, you know. Nobody has a full fledged. But so so this kid had the basis for a lot of mental health challenges. So I said, all right, I'm going to sentence you to two to six years. And I said on the record that, but however, this young boy has to get the kind of mental health treatment that he needs. Otherwise he'll be back with us uh, doing something more serious. And so then, and then his lawyer said, but judge, you see he he had the beautiful hair, beautiful hair. He had hair like Jay-Z, you know, Jay-Z has that cut now. And he said, Judge, he said, could you do me a favor, would, would you, you know, everybody usually gets their hair shaved and where they were going. And he said, I said, and, and, and in a sense, this young boy uh, looks at his hair almost at, in a religious way. And I said, well, you know, the only way I, I could let him keep his hair is if you claim it was a religious uh, uh, aspect uh, to it. And he did, he made a motion and, and he kind of, he stretched it. And I stretched only because I wanted to leave this young boy with some modicum of dignity to build on when I sentenced them. Do you know so what I said sent- to
0: him after?
1: Yes, yeah, um, I'm going to tell you. So then, so I sentenced him to two to six, and that's somehow the papers get a hold of this, and says, Judge, not that this kid had so many difficult issues, but that I let him keep his hair, his dreadlocks. That was the criticism, you know. And anyway, so did you anyway, get in big trouble? T- or you? Yeah, did you get know. in trouble? <laughs> No, I was always in trouble. I had good trouble. So, so then he comes out, and I remember a line in his probation report that he always wanted a home of his own. Mm. He comes out. He goes to a low-income project. He meets a, uh, a person there who takes him into to his house, and he beheads this person oh. and puts the head in the refrigerator. And he stayed in the home for months. Then he finally had a home of his own. That was the tragedy of it. That we didn't, No, I've always felt that, yeah, there are certain kids that have these issues, that in order to protect him and the community, we have to keep them separate. But they have to get the kind of services that they need. Otherwise, the recidivism rates for the kids that I had to send off. Because we had nothing else, no other option available.
0: But most the places risk... don't have, you know, Michael, when you think about the resources in most jurisdictions, they don't have the resources. They, you know, state budgets are right. being cut. Judicial yes. budgets are being yes. cut. So should we, do we have to just accept the fact that there are going to be a whole bunch of Uh, young people who are doing horrible things, who come from horrible situations, and there's just going to be nothing that we can do to help them get better. Do we have to just accept that?
1: No. No. We don't have to accept it. We can fight against it. We can reorder our priorities. And if we don't do it, then our democracy, our idea of the American dream, our idea of equal opportunity for for everyone, will sooner or later collapse around. us. As a matter of fact, the, the walls in our democracy are beginning to be compressed as we speak. We got some work to do. <laughs> and we aren't dealing with our poor, with our young people who uh, uh, African-American, with our young Hispanic people. We aren't dealing with them in a way that reflects our better angels in, in our society and recognizes them for the diamonds and the jewels that they are.
0: What do you say to people, though, who are on the other side of the conduct? What do you say to people who say, you know what, these young people may be troubled, but they are bringing violence and destruction to me and my community, and nobody seems to care. You know, there's a narrative where right. that focuses a lot on the offender. Sometimes we don't pay as much attention to the victims. Right. Uh, right. Does providing these alternatives in some way make communities safer or are Absolutely. you or are you being too kind
1: look at the recidivism rates as i said the the, the uh, this department of justice study found that 70% of these the most violent of the kids that we have had 70% because the, the, the only kids that should be institutionalized are kids that are prone to violence using violence as a way of getting what they want what they need uh or 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 taking it out on others. So we put those kids away. We put those kids away. But 70% of them, when they're released, get re-arrested. Are we protecting society if that is the fact? Or when you look at the recidivism rate, and first of all, we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to keep uh, an adolescent in an institution for a year. Alternative to incarceration programs cost considerably less and their recidivism rates are one that I know of in particular. The Avenues for Justice: ninety percent of the young people that go through their program are not rearrested within three to wow. five years of, of going through the program. So, so I, I
0: just uh, I, I want to focus on. I just want to highlight right. that for a second. So what you just said is that for juvenile offenders that go through the system in the traditional "we're going to sentence you as an adult" way. There's a, the recidivism rate is as high as 70%. The recidivism rate for offenders who've gone through at least one of these alternative to incarceration programs that you cited is 10%. 10%. So we're talking and, about and, 70% and versus correct.
1: 10%. That's correct. And the cost savings. So it isn't a matter of, I mean, if we looked at it really, from stand back from it, it would cost us less to deal more humanely with these young people. It, it, it would cost us less in damage to society in the long run. And giving so many young people uh, an opportunity to become constructive members of the community rather than destructive members. So it doesn't, what, what, where where the problem is, is philosophically. There are those who believe you have to get tough. And that some some take that lack of compassion and say the opposite is is toughness. But in in reality, it may even be considered uh, meanness. Meanness is not a substitute. Uh, It's not toughness. Toughness is finding the spaces in the law to do what is morally right in the face of overwhelming opposition. That's toughness standing by by your principles, doing it, even though you may be in the minority at this moment. It's not about getting tough. It's about tough love. And so we what we tried to do was change the lens by which these young people uh, were viewed, treated, and prosecuted in society by showing that we could, consistent with public safety, take half to two-thirds of them out of the system, out of the corrosive system that robs them of their, their ambition, that that robs them of, of their character, that the, the robs them of their humanity. Can you imagine a 14 year old boy waiting behind me? We had one holding cell. He'd be in the holding cell with maybe 10 other defendants waiting that day. And he had, he had to go to the bathroom and he would have to go to the bathroom in front of, The other people waiting there because the Department of Correction wouldn't want to lose sight of him. This is the dehumanizing impact of putting kids in cages. That's I'm not, I'm not, this is not a way of apologizing for delinquent behavior. What I created was not a lenient effort. It was, in my view, a smart, tough love. Kids that didn't do what I said, I put it in jail. I put 14-year-olds, 13-year-olds in jail for life for murder. I did what the law required of me, but I may not have embraced it in the way others did, but I did it. But more importantly, I kept my eyes open for those young people that I thought we could reach, and I felt that I had a moral obligation to do it.
0: I have seen you be tough many times uh, on our show, certainly where the stakes aren't as high as someone being incarcerated. I've never Mm -hmm. seen you be mean. Uh, I've never seen you be mean on camera or off camera. But you know, Michael, I think that there's another element to this because sometimes people are being mean, but candidly, sometimes people are just mad. Like you turn on the TV and then you see people just acting with this brazen impunity. And I'm not going to lie, I, I want a smarter and more fair justice system, but I am also sometimes mightily annoyed, to put it mildly, at the impunity with, 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 with which people act sometimes. And so don't, what do you say to people who feel that justice requires jail and jail for a long time? What's your response to those people? An
1: eye for an eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's very visceral.
0: It's a very emotional thing. You know, sometimes people want that. What do you say?
1: I I understand that. But as a public servant, and I cannot look, as much as I, I, I appreciate and empathize, I cannot look at you in isolation. I have to look at the good of the community. There is a way to give people a pound of flesh, if you will, and yet achieve the rehabilitative goals that uh, a juvenile justice system should pursue. And, and I did that very often. I did that by imprisoning young people for a short period of time, to bring home to them the severity of what they did, to reflect the depth of injury to the victims that the, that they created. And also tried, I, I often uh, asked, prosecutors, especially if there was a slashing case or or it was a question of a knife and violence, I would say, bring bring everybody into my chambers, including the victim and and their parents. And so I did that in one case. It was a young woman who slashed the face of a rival girlfriend uh, over her her relationship with her boyfriend, Mm. slashed it from ear to chin. Prosecutor recommended two to six years in prison. Felony record. She was 14, never been in trouble before. Hispanic young girl. So, I, and and she came in, she was completely remorseful, very distraught. A lawyer said, judge, I want you to take a look at the, the probation report. I read the probation report. This 14 year old girl, when she was five years of age, was walking with her mother across the street, holding her mother's hand when her estranged father came across the street, pulled out a switchblade knife mm. and slashed her mother across the face and stabbed the mother repeatedly in the chest Jeez. because he thought she was having the affair with his, someone else, his friend. She fell to the ground, dead, still holding this little girl's hand, five years old. Nine years later, what does this little girl do? So now I, I, I bring the victim in and I see this lovely young woman who's got a scar on her face and her mother. And they, I said, well, look, I I said, I just want you to understand what I can do and what I can't do. Because of her age and because of the nature of the crime, the most I could sentence her to would be three and a third to 10 years. So she's 14, I'd give her three and a third to 10. She'd be out 18 years of age, 19 years of age with a felony record. What skills would she have learned? Uh, uh, What kind of job is she going to get? What education is she going to get there? And how safe are we now going to be from the, from this young woman? I said, if I gave her that sentence, in a sense, I'm just wiping my hands of, of the responsibility here. I said, what would you like to see? And he said, well, judge, you know, what she did was terrible. And my, 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 daughter has this scar for life. And I said, well, well, what is it that you, what did you, what do you want? She said, I want to be protected from her. Mm. So I said, well, I said, what about this? I said, let me float this idea with you. If I kept her in jail for a year and then let her out into a program for at least another year, if not two years, and then place her on probation for another five years, I would have essentially control over her for the next seven, eight years. And if she violated my probation, I could put her back in jail for up to, to five years. I said, would that make more sense to you and that you would be protected from her? And yet you would, uh, uh, that my sentence or keeping her in an institution for a year, depriving her of her liberty would be enough punishment to make you feel better. And the mother and the the young girl said, yeah, that makes more sense to us. Hmm. Now, this was a victim. Now, it could have been, you know, the eye for an eye, but but, they, but I also appealed to their intellect. I appealed to their better angels, if you will. And we worked something out, and that young girl uh, did her two years. I think the probation department brought it back to me once because she was smoking marijuana, but we addressed that. She stayed out of trouble five years, got, got, ultimately got probation and a record and went on to lead a, a relatively constructive life.
0: You've talked about structural inequities in the system, um, or at least some structural uh, inequities in the system. A lot of the young people who came before you were poor. They were uh, young people of color. Uh, in New York, there was much discussion about racial disparities in drug prosecutions, not just in yes. New York, but around the country. Yes. Um, African-Americans do not use marijuana or other drugs, for instance, in greater numbers Uh, Than uh, white people, but they are arrested. We uh, are arrested uh, in New York. I think it's at like five times the rate. So you've got, you know, two groups of people who are engaged in an activity at roughly the same rate. One group is arrested at five times the rate. Uh, of the other group. African-Americans are. Um, we talked about my friend Chris Henning's book, Rage of Innocence, yes. How America Criminalizes and Black Youth. I, took a look at, I, I took spoke a look. to Chris earlier this week. What did you see from your vantage point as a judge uh, in terms of disparities in the system? Were you aware of differences in the way that prosecutors uh, charged cases or brought cases to you? And did you do anything about it if you were aware of it?
1: Well, I did try to do what I could within the confines of, of the law. And uh, no judge likes to be reversed, but I, I think I, I was reversed one or two times, but but uh, as as a good buddy of mine who was a terrific judge said to me he's uh, you know when he was reversed, he said, yes, they reverse me once in a while, but I reverse them every day. Here's the way I, I see first of all, in in my book, when I, when I taught, there were, there were four words that I think define what I tried to do, and that was judge children as children. And what is essential, what is essential to diminishing the impact of bias or discrimination or racism in the courts is number one, we have to select the best judges we can. We have to take the selection of judges out of politics. We have to do it on the basis of merit. Uh, and second of all, we once we do that, once we have the best judges we can, who are, who are trained, in developmentally sensitive reactions to uh, young people and uh, people who are of, of different cultures, then you're going to have a group of judges who are in the best possible position to see racism when it comes at them, to see and understand uh, why an adolescent might be more fearful of alienating his friends than following the law. And you will see, but all of that, all of that depends upon the structure of the process being altered where the judges are given more discretion, not less. And what we've seen over the years that make uh, racism and uh, uh, cultural differences more uh, apparent in the application of the law is the lack of discretion of judges. For example, one of, the, one of the, the, the remedies that the so-called get tough crowd thought was terrific is to strip judges of their sentencing discretion to provide for mandatory imprisonment for certain offices. So I had a, a woman who all her life was a drug addict. All her life was a drug addict. I've been arrested numerous times for possessing cocaine, for, for selling it, until one day she, she somehow she got connected with a drug dealer who gave her a large amount of cocaine uh, to sell on his behalf and he was going to pay her by by giving her her drugs. And she came before me, and she was facing mandatory imprisonment of five Mm. years to life because of the weight of the cocaine. And I was so angry. As you put it, sometimes you get mad at the impunity. I was so angry at the law, so angry at those legislators that thought that the way to, to rein in the judges was to take away their sentencing authority. Because if I had discretion, I would have placed that person in, in, in a service program, despite the number of times that she had been inv- involved with her. She needed that help. That was the help that she not to be incarcerated for 10 years or so. And So what I think we need to do is get the best answers we can, give more flexibility, not less, to those judges in determining who should be tried as adults, So California has has an interesting structure. The prosecutor can apply to the court to move certain cases out into the adult court system. Now here here at that pinpoint in time is where we often see, well, wait a minute now, how many middle-class white kids are being transferred up to the adult court for prosecution? as opposed to being handled in in the juvenile court, right? So we want to make sure that the judge, whose responsibility it should be to determine the amenability of young people to respond positively to the the rehabilitative services offered in the juvenile court, as opposed to the incarceration exposure in an adult court, they should be there at that moment, and they should have the flexibility and the training to say, no, no. I'm not, I'm not doing that. He's going to stay in the, in the juvenile court and he's going to be treated. Now, California had a, a, in 1999 over 10,000 10, young people, essentially, in institutions. Wow. 10,000. My understanding is, yes, my understanding is now they have 750. And as a matter of fact, a couple of not-for-profits, I think they won the Human Rights Committee for Children. Said that California has the most humane juvenile justice system. So what you said,
0: we went from ten thousand to seven hundred and fifty. To seven hundred and
1: fifty, remarkable.
0: Before we go, uh, Michael, there's a young man in the news, Kyle Rittenhouse, and uh, Mm -hmm. who's now in trial. As we record this interview, his defense has rested. Mm Uh, I don't know the status of what the status of the case will be when we Mm -hmm. uh, air next week. But what are your views on him? I mean, because really, there's some suggestion that he's an example of a double standard in two ways. One is uh, the racial double standard query whether or not a young black man carrying uh, a semi-automatic rifle on a night like that could just walk by police officers Uh, without being stopped, arrested, questioned. Um, There there are uh, a lot of facts that have been recited in the case that suggest that, look, if Kyle Rittenhouse were a young black man, uh, he might not have lived to even see a trial. And so some point out that there's a real disparity there. The other double standard uh, to which some point is that The normal sympathy that one might have for a youthful offender is lacking in this case uh, because his cause certainly has been taken up uh, by the right and by conservatives. And for that reason, some say, you know, look, we're not seeing him as a kid. We're seeing him as a young right winger who was off to do violence. Uh, What do you think about this case and where does his story fit in your theory about how we should treat and view Uh, young people who come into the system?
1: All of our children, all of our young people, are products of their environment. They are products of how they were nurtured as young people. So here we have a 17-year-old boy who goes to a demonstration armed with an AK-15 which I, I, as I understand the reports, he illegally possessed he had a friend purchase it for him. and he goes there ostensibly for the purpose of protecting property of others, as essentially a guard against those protesting police brutality. Now there is some, there, there is some evidence that after the shooting, he was treated differently, then anyone should have been treated. I think he was like essentially let go. So uh, you know th- this is this is undeniable, and and it's something that we as a society have to confront. And so there 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 in in your friend Chris Henning's book, there is one thing that she uh, emphasizes, and that is education and training of our law enforcement people to be sensitive to these. Issues and how they're perceived. Not necessarily. I mean, I know one thing: when I presided over a case, uh, the jury was sacrosanct to me. I, I got the twelve. I tried to 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 make sure that we got the twelve best people we could out of the jury pool, the twelve least biased people we could find, because they were the determiners of justice in any given case, and. Uh, we, we need to emphasize that that's what makes us great. Not a, a judge or a police officer in terms of the, 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 the institutions, but 12 ordinary citizens uh, have the right to determine the guilt or non-guilt of another individual in our society. And if that isn't the meaning of democracy, that no judge, no lawyer, no politician no newspaper reporter, no one can dictate to that jury what their verdict should be. And as a judge, see, I'm all for favor, a favor in giving more authority to our judges in the sense of helping them make sure that our juries are as pristine as they can be, as reflectors of the community in which the crime was committed. Do you think the
0: prosecutors in the Rittenhouse case uh, are being too harsh. I mean, as I understand it correctly, uh, if, if he's convicted of everything, he can go to jail for the rest of his life.
1: Two people died, and one was, was so, but seriously where is injured. His brain?
0: So he was 17 so, at the time, and you know, we so, talked about youthful brains not being completely formed. So right, should we right. be treating him? Should the state be treating him in a, more, uh, in a, more, in a way that's more... Mm-hmm. Gentle is not the
1: right word. Here's where the problem We don't yet have the sophistication to assure the community that an intervention that is non-incarceratory for a young man that's alleged to have killed two people and wounded us and is alleged to carry a weapon. It's very easy to speak in arbitrary generalities about young people, but not every 17-year-old is not intellectually the same. Not every seventeen-year-old uh, has the same uh, level of maturity. So I I I think that there is no there was no other option that the community, both sides of the community would, would understand as being justice, because that's what keeps us all in line. That we we expect to get justice in our society. The if if we were to treat him by saying, "Well, you're just a seventeen-year-old boy." And um, this was a horrible mistake and misjudgment on your part. No, I, I, for the good of the community, for the good of the two thirds or three quarters of the other young men who will encounter the juvenile justice system, the criminal just, justice system, we have to be tough when we have no alternative in the sense that we, we have to be able to make the choice of imprisonment. I don't think we, we have yet moved as Martin Luther King said, you know the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. We haven't yet reached a world in which we could say that we could take everybody who's hurt someone badly, deliberately, and and just link them with a psychiatrist. We're not there yet as a community, and to do so would impair the ability to reach so many other young people because it is the sensational case of murder that drives the reform. 1978, New York was driven to enact the harshest juvenile offender law in the country because of a young boy who murdered two people on a subway. And it took us 40 years to get away from that mandatory, arbitrary classification of trying 13 and 14-year-olds automatically as adults because of the nature of the offense. Uh,
0: Before we go, tell us something that makes you hopeful. You know, um, as uh, I'm a lawyer, you're a judge, uh, we arbitrate these small claims cases, we see a lot of drama Mm -hmm. and conflict. Uh, You spent 28 years on the New Mm -hmm. York bench where you saw even more intense drama and conflict and violence. Uh, What is something, notwithstanding all of that stuff, that makes you hopeful?
1: Uh, I I see many young people who uh, have educated themselves, made themselves aware uh, of the issue, standing up and protesting what they perceive to be injustices in our society. And it's the very same young people who I have worked with, who've made terrible mistakes. It is the young of this country that it gives me hope. And and I want to make sure that they all have an opportunity to recover from their mistakes When to do so would not violate public safety. Well, so. I'm
0: going to end with this. Uh, something that gives me hope is you. Because I think that for someone to use their platform uh, and their power to try to make things better uh, for people who have neither and uh, to, you know, you you regularly and we talk about this a lot you remind me to exercise my empathy muscle. Uh, and so it is your you and your sensibility and working with you, that gives me hope. Um, truly, I love you, Michael. I think you're, you're the, the best. best. No, you're the best. Thank you. I'll see everybody soon. Bye. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody.